The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. We're going to begin today in a new uh, series of uh, sermons, and it's in the book of Isaiah, in the servant songs of Isaiah. And I want to give this morning, as we begin, just a couple of reasons for why this series of messages. The goal of all our ministry is twofold, and those two goals are connected. It's to glorify God by proclaiming and teaching and ministering and preaching Christ, because God is glorified when we preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second goal, tied right to it, is to see people changed and transformed into Christ's image. And that in turn glorifies God because as we are changed more and more into Christ's image, we become like living statues reflecting Christ and the glory of God to the world. All right, those are the two goals. And uh, the first passage that Cameron read in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, by seeing Christ, we are changed into the glory of Christ. That's why we preach Christ. So how do we accomplish that goal of glorifying God and seeing men and women transformed into the image of Christ? And the way we do it is biblical and it's really simple. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, it says, We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. In Ephesians 3 verse 8, the Bible tells us that we are to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ that comes from uh, Ephesians 3, verse 8. In Colossians 1, 28, which has been a real uh, support verse, an encouragement verse to me, it says, We proclaim Christ. We warn everyone of the danger of rejecting Christ. And we teach everyone with all wisdom. So that, there's the purpose. We may present everyone mature in Christ. And from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. This is Paul's famous statement to the Corinthian church. He said that he determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Why? He didn't come preaching in man's wisdom or in man's thinking and logic and rational like that. He came preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit that their faith might rest in the power of God. That's what we do. That's what we strive to do, to preach Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that our faith might rest in God, not in man. And finally, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, at the church in Ephesus, and he says the aim or the goal or the objective of our ministry is love. Love flowing from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, it's Christ-like love that flows from a Christ-like heart. So how do we accomplish that? We preach Christ so that we will all be transformed into Christ's image. 
Now, you could argue quite accurately that the whole Bible is God's revelation concerning Christ to us. So we can, we should, we must preach Christ from every single text of Scripture. All right? Now, most texts in the Bible concern Christ in relation to a topic or a subject of some type. But there are some texts, fewer in number, that simply present the glories of Christ's person and work. And it's these Christological, that's what they call that, Christological texts that I want us to focus on for a little while. You say, how long? A uh, couple months, a couple years, a few decades, whatever it takes. Because my goal, my goal in everything we do in all our ministry is to hold up the glory and beauty of Christ for all to see. Now, someone might say, well, what about the needs? What about the concerns, the issues, the, the problems, the, the contemporary events that need to be addressed? Well, I've thought about that a lot recently. My conviction now is that as we strive to see Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, we will discover how to handle, how to respond, how to think about all those issues concerns and problems. And as we're transferred, transformed, sorry, transformed into Christ's image, we'll begin to see those issues with Christ-like eyes. So how do we respond to something like gay marriage? How do we respond to what's going on in our world, politics and all the upheavals? There's so much going on. We respond to it by becoming more like Christ. By having the mind of Christ that Paul speaks about. So when we see all those issues and millions more beside, we will know how to think those th about those things, how to respond to them. Having said all that, we're going to start this morning in the first of Isaiah's, what they're called the servant songs. There is uh, a few of them in the scriptures in Isaiah's book. And we want to begin with Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. And we're only going to go through the first half of the first verse today. So it might take us a while, but we will just enjoy as much as we can and see Christ in as much as we can as we study the text together. So the first thing I want you to notice, and by the way, as always, there is an outline in your uh, bulletin there. You can follow along, keep track of where we are. Uh, some of you take these home, and uh, I know at least... A couple do uh, sit down with all these texts and bring them all out and lay them all out and, and beside the outline and see how the texts work. Double check. Someone found, a, I think it was a dear brother Noel, found, I put a typo in here. I actually referred to a text that doesn't exist in the notes. It was just a typo. I had the numbers backwards or something. But just double check. I'm giving you text of scripture. This is the authority, not me. So double check and make sure I haven't misstated or overstated something in my message. And let me know if I have. It happens. First of all, in Isaiah 42, let's read verse 1 again. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Notice right away, behold the Lord's servant who is Christ. Now, one of the great questions you should ask is, how do we know it's speaking about Christ? Well, Matthew, 
the disciple of the Lord Jesus, writing under the Holy Spirit's inspiration in Matthew 12, verses 17 to 21, quotes this text with some slight variation, and he applies it to Jesus. So the Spirit of God gives us a very clear answer when Moses quotes it under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and says, this is about Jesus. We can say, it's about Jesus. We're not going wrong here, right? So Isaiah 42, 1-9 is speaking about Christ, the Lord's servant. Notice also, there's one command, one single command in that text, and it's this. Behold, look, see, consider. How are we going to do that? How are we going in 2021 to see Christ, to see the servant? We can't because he's not here and visible to our physical eyes. So the only way we can see him is with the eyes of the heart. God reveals himself and Christ through scripture, by the Holy Spirit, through the word of God. 1 Samuel 3 and verse 21, the Bible says that God reveals himself to Samuel, and by implication, by us too, by the word of the Lord. It's scripture that reveals Christ to us. So the call on us in this text is a single command. Behold. That's repeated elsewhere in the Bible, isn't it? In John 1, 29, John the Baptist looks at Christ coming, walking down towards the shore, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I had a great story. I might have shared it with you before. Forgive me if I have, but uh, Spurgeon was in uh, the Surrey Music Hall, Music Gardens Hall, whatever it's called, a great place where they preached for a while because they were building his new church. And he walked in there. They didn't have amplification back in those days. And so in order to be a preacher, you had to have a chest like this and he had to be able to bellow. And he went up on a day when it was all empty and he wanted to see how the acoustics were going to work. So he stood up on the pulpit and they had a big sounding board hanging over his head. And so he leaned back and he just bellowed with all of his preacherly strength. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, what he didn't know was there was a gardener working over in the back corner who was illiterate. And he didn't know Spurgeon was there. All of a sudden he heard this great voice booming out of the emptiness. Behold, the Lamb of God. The guy put down his tools, went home, opened his Bible and got saved. Trusted Christ. And at the end of his days, he was illiterate. He had taken his Bible and he had just turned the pages over every day and, and held his Bible because he couldn't read, but he could at least hold a Bible. He loved the Lord so much that he could just hold a Bible. And Jesus, sorry, the Spirit of God writing through Isaiah says, Behold, look at my servant. In John 19 and verse 5, we're told to behold the man. Pilate stands there with all the crowds of Jews before him, and he calls Jesus out, and Jesus comes forth. And the Bible says he had the crown of thorns on his head. His back was raked open by the scourge and covered with a robe. He would have been a slow, shuffling walk. And he says, Look, that's him. That's the command to us today, brothers and sisters. Behold the man. Behold the lamb. And praise God for Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. And John again is there. And he's looking around for someone to open, break the seals and open the scroll and look what's inside of it. And no one was found, not anyone anywhere. And finally an angel says, Ah, oh, don't weep anymore, John. Look and see. The Lamb of God. Or I know actually he says, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Speaking about Jesus as the glorified king. And the Bible says that John turned around and he saw a lamb as I had been slain, but standing. There's triumph and there's victory. Brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, for you who don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're here, that's the call on all of us this day. Look and see. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we're told to be looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look to Christ. That's the, that's the one command the whole text says. And he's going to explain who this one is, who this servant is. But I invite you this morning to look in faith. Look at Scripture. Look at Christ in faith that He will answer the needs of your heart. In faith that He will reveal Himself to you. He will show Himself to you so you will know how to follow Him. You will know how to love Him and trust Him. You will know and understand sin that needs to be repented of and put off. That you might walk with Christ. Look in fear. Not just faith, but in reverent fear for the one you behold is no ordinary man. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the creator and sustainer of all the earth. He is the one who will come as the conquering king and judge in a coming day very soon. And beyond all that, beloved, look in worship. Look and see Him with love in your hearts as the One who died for you to wash you clean, to bring you back to God and reconcile you to Himself. So look. Behold the Lord's servant who is Christ. Secondly, Christ is the servant of the Lord. Now the word here for servant is the word eved in Hebrew. And it means a slave, a servant, or a minister. Christ came to serve the Lord, His Father, and His God. Jesus Himself described Himself as a servant. In Matthew 20 and verse 28, He said that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. A servant is one whose will is entirely consumed with speaking, doing, performing the will of the one they're serving. Servants and slaves in those days often took the form of high-ranking, highly paid officials. They were well-treated. They were honored, even though they were servants and slaves. Yet Jesus served in a less honorable and more ignominious ways. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2, verse 7, He served by coming to dwell amongst humanity as a man. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, He served in that while He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor so that we, by His poverty, might be made rich. Christ served by obeying His Father's will perfectly. In John 6 and verse 38, He said, He came not to do His own will, but to do the will of the Father. In Psalm 40 and verse 8, David's words are Christ's words as He says, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. Christ served by obeying. Christ served by ministering to His disciples. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is John 13. And Jesus, knowing all things, and knowing that He had come from the Father and He was going back to the Father, the Bible says He got up from the dinner table he rose, he disrobed himself, took off his outer clothing, he wrapped his waist with a towel and began to wash their stinking feet. 
He ministered. He taught them and us the Word. He commanded them and us to love. He set us the perfect example to follow in His life, His ministry, and His death. Christ served by ministering to His disciples. He served by dying on a cross to save His people from God's wrath. In Philippians 2, verse 8, the Bible says, that being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Beloved, this morning, look and behold. See Christ, the servant of the Lord. See Him as He humbles Himself. See Him obeying His Father's will perfectly. See Christ ministering the Word to them and us. And see Him dying in our place on our cross and for our sin. But notice, His service was not drudgery. He didn't drag Himself around like a, a child that's been told to go clean their room and they walk as slowly as possible. They just kind of flick a few things here and there and they're totally lazy in their obedience. No, the Bible says that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He delighted. It was His delight to do the will of the Father. He served with a great joy. And Christian, listen. For those of us who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, for those of us who have repented of our sin and trusted in Christ to save us, we are now servants also. How many times in the Bible did Paul say, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus by the will of God and so on. Almost every writer, if I, if I remember correctly in the epistles at least, state that at the beginning. Peter, Paul, James, they're bondservants of Christ. Christ set us the example to follow that we are His servants. He called us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and the verses following, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to walk after Him. It doesn't mean just walk where He went. It means to walk in the way that He walked. And His desire, His delight was to serve His Father. We have been saved. We've made, been made sons and daughters, but we've also been made servants of the King. And the call on us is to serve as Christ served. You say, how am I ever going to serve the way Christ served? And the answer is real simple. Look at Jesus. Focus on Christ. Look to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and you will understand how it is that we serve. You'll understand the way your reactions ought to be. You'll understand how your words ought to be spoken. The more we see Christ, the more we are transformed into the image of Christ. It doesn't mean we just look like Christ. It means we act like Christ. We live like Christ. We serve like Christ. Notice thirdly, Christ is the servant upheld by the Lord. The word in Hebrew is the word etmach, and it means to take hold, to maintain, to support. And John Calvin makes this great point. He says that just as kings leaned on their highest officials, and I think the way it worked was an official when a king would go into a place and the king would put his arms out and the other servants would come alongside and they kind of support his arms and he kind of walked in. And it was a way of saying, these are my officials. And it was a way of the officials saying, we support and we stand behind our king, our emperor. And they would lean 
on those different officials. And Calvin makes the point that God leans on his servant Christ to be the king over his kingdom. He leans on him in the sense of delivering to him the kingdom which he would rule over. He has and is leaning on the arm of Christ to exercise his rule and reign. Those officials, I mean, the king didn't run around doing all the work. He delegated, right? You go there, you do this, you go there, you do that. He, he sent delegates out to take care of all the things that had to be done. And so the father, leaning on the son or grasping a hold of the son and leaning on him, is delegating him and setting him forward as the king in his kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, The Ancient of Days is seated on a throne. And he receives the Son of Man and gives to him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 28? In verse 16, he said, All authority had been given to him. Christ the servant is also Christ the King who rules and reigns. When he says, Whom I uphold, whom I grasp a hold of, this is the one I'm setting forward. And it just occurred to me, you could take that idea and he's set forward as the propitiation by his blood. You know, Romans 3, it's God's way of showing this is my servant who is not only my king, not only my servant, but he's also the savior of God's people. Brother and sister in Christ, look to Christ. Look and see the one who died to save you. Look and see the one who rules and reigns over all of existence. Look and see the one who will sustain you to the end. Look and see the one who the Father has laid his hand on and upholds and secures himself to that one. This is my servant. And he says, look and see. Christ the servant came in the authority of God his Father. And just as surely as Christ the servant obeyed his Father in all things, so now Christ the King has been exalted and entrusted with the kingdom to rule and reign over all. Beloved, look and see. But you know, there's another sense. Another sense in which we can understand the word uphold. It's kind of similar in meaning. The Lord grasps, supports, and causes Christ to remain. The word uphold also contains the idea that God the Lord supported and enabled Christ to endure and complete his ministry. 18th century Baptist preacher named John Gill, who, as I understand it, he was in the same church Spurgeon was only about 100 years uh, before that. And John Gill said this, he said, Christ was upheld as man and mediator by his Father, not only in his being as man, but was strengthened and helped in his mediatorial service so that he did not sink under the mighty weight of the sins of his people or of the wrath of God. I'll read that again, or I'll actually summarize so you know what he's saying. Gill is saying that when God grasped a hold of his servant, it was to strengthen and enable him to finish the work. It means that all through his work, God helped him. Simply put, God strengthened Christ to finish his service. In Mark 1, 9, verses 11, right after his baptism, what do we see? 
The heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends upon Christ. And the Father speaks from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. In you I greatly delight. He filled him with the Spirit of God to empower him for his ministry. In Matthew 4 and verse 11, after his temptation, what do we see? Angels sent there by God to minister to him, to strengthen him to finish the work. In Luke chapter 4 verse 14, After his temptation, after those angels, we see him returning to Galilee. And the Bible says he's filled with the Spirit, leading and strengthening him for his ministry. God the Lord upheld him and strengthened him to finish his servants. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I who know Christ as Savior, we're called to live the godly life of service finishing the work that Christ started. We also have the joy, the reassurance of our God upholding us. Isn't it great to know that God never asks you to do something that He doesn't first give you the strength to do? He calls you to do something, and as you exercise that will to obey, His strength comes and we're able to obey and do whatever it is God has called us to. It'll probably look impossible to you. But the moment you stretch out your hand or lift your foot or open your mouth to speak, God's strength is there enabling you to do what God has called you to do. He will be with us. He'll be in us. He'll lead us. He'll never forsake us. The Bible promises us that. He'll never let us go. None can pry us out of God's hand. Look at that word in your Bible. Behold my servant who I uphold, whom I grasp. I'm holding onto him. I'm I'm hanging on to him. He's got my help, my support, my enabling, my encouragement, my authority, even in those words. And brother and sister in Christ, you and I have the same. None can steal us away from the safety and security of being in Christ's hand, held by Him and filled with His Holy Spirit. The power to live this Christian life is the power of God worked in Christ and as He upheld Him for His ministry. But He's in us too, upholding us and sustaining us for our ministry. But you know, there's even more. If that wasn't enough, listen, The Bible says in in, uh, Romans 8 and verse 30 and Ephesians 2 and verse 6, it says that God has already glorified us in Romans 8, 30. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that God has raised us up and seated us with Christ in heavenly places just as surely as Christ is going to rule and reign over the kingdom of God, so we have been seated with Him and we will reign alongside of Him. He upholds His servant. He holds Him up as the King. He holds Him and strengthens Him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we who know Jesus as our Savior, He is upholding us to strengthen us for the work. And He is holding on to us, grasping on to us, And one day we will rule and reign with Christ. What a wonderful hope we have. Amen. And our hope is entirely in Christ. Notice fourthly, Christ is the servant chosen by the Lord. God the Lord has chosen Christ to be His servant. 
Now, in what sense do we understand that Christ is chosen? It's certainly not that there were many divine sons of God and the one that became Christ was chosen one out of many. If you believe that, congratulations, you just entered a cult and, and it's false belief entirely. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. So he wasn't chosen out of one out of many. So then, in what sense does God mean when he says, Behold my servant, my chosen, in whom I delight. John Gill, that same Baptist pastor, described it like this. He said, Before the creation of the world, God chose the human nature of Jesus to be united with the divine nature of the Son of God, such that Jesus Christ is two natures in one person. Okay? So the, the, remember this. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, always exists. From eternity past to eternity future, all you can say is, Jesus is. Or the Son of God is, is a better way to say it. But, Christ, or sorry, Jesus, the human Jesus, was conceived. He was born and he lives forever. At his conception, the divine nature and the human nature were joined not mingled, but joined and never could be separated. So that Christ is two natures in one person. So the Son of God always exists, but Jesus the man was conceived and born and grew and so on. And he became, and I've got to be very careful with language here, this gets very particular. I can see the theologians smiling because they know the struggle. You've got to be very careful with this. The Son of God exists from eternity to eternity. Jesus was born, his human nature and divine nature, at the moment of conception, were joined together, never to be separated again. So in heaven, Jesus Christ has a physical body, just like yours and mine, only in perfection. And he has the two natures, divine and, phys and uh, human, tied together. So Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man in one person. He was chosen from among the people to be the Lamb of God, who died to redeem God, to redeem, sorry, his people. Jesus Christ was chosen to be the mediator between God and man. Why would he be chosen? Because having a human nature and a divine nature, he's the only one in all of existence that is qualified and able to represent humanity to God and God to humanity, Right? Any one of us, you could say, hey, you know, Sharon is wonderful. She's a great human being. She can represent us to God. Awesome. Only one problem. She's got sin. That's a problem. Number two, how is she going to represent God to us? Because she's not divine. As lovely as she is. She's not divine, right? So it doesn't work. So any other option for a savior, a mediator, a redeemer automatically falls flat because they can represent us to God, but they cannot represent God to us as God. So Jesus was chosen to be the mediator because there was no other person who can perfectly represent us to God and represent God to us. Christ was chosen to be the head of the church again because no other person has both divine nature and human nature in one person able to be the head of God's church. He was chosen to be the servant of the Lord because there is no other person like Jesus Christ. 
None. You can search all of history from Adam all the way to the very last person and you'll find, you'll never find one other person just like Jesus. Even you and I, transformed into Christ's image, we will never become God. By the way, there is a heretical idea floating around out there on YouTube that we become like God, but not just like God. We become God's as we are transformed into Christ's image. Absolute heresy. Don't believe it. We are transformed into the image of Christ. We become perfected one day when God finishes the work in us. But we will never become God. And so you can search for all through all of history in every continent on the face of this planet and you'll never ever find another one just like Jesus. There is none. Miriam asked the question in Exodus 15 and verse 11, Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer was, none but Christ. Christ is holy as the Father is holy. Christ has completed the most glorious of all the deeds. Christ has performed wonders beyond all comparison. He saved sinners like you and me. He paid the debt of death on behalf of all his people. He endured the wrath of Almighty God against us. He made us to be sons and daughters of the living God. And God says to us, behold, look and see my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. There is none other like Jesus. He was chosen. Listen, beloved. For those of you sitting here this morning who do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, let me tell you with absolute certainty that there is no one but Christ who can rescue you from the wrath of God which is surely coming. None. He was chosen because He alone was able to save you. Turn and see. Look with the eyes of faith. Look with the eyes of fear before God and see Christ. See Him in the beauty of His holiness and know for certain that you are a sinner before God Almighty. But God demonstrates His love toward you in that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look and see with the eyes of faith. Trust Him to save you. Fifthly and lastly, Christ is the servant delighted in by the Lord. The Bible says in Isaiah 42, 1, in the second part, my chosen in whom my soul delights. By the way, there's a lifetime of study and preaching in that statement. The Father's delight in the Son. 17th century Scottish preacher by the name of Henry Scougal wrote this. He said, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. You see someone who loves pornography. You see someone who loves adultery. You see someone who loves violence and loves deception, loves murder, loves wickedness. And that's a wicked soul. The worth and excellency of that soul is seen by the object of its love. What you love displays so much about you. And then you read the words 
in whom my soul delights, the soul of the Father, was loved and delighted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. There is no other being in all of existence in whom we can delight like Christ. And the Father says, there's none other but Christ. And I delight in Him. I delight in what He has done. I delight in who He is. The servant whom He upholds, whom He had chosen, He delights. The word there for delight is the word rasta. And it means to take pleasure in that one. It means to be to act favorably toward that one. It means to have a high degree of satisfaction in that one. The servant of the Lord is the object of the Lord's delight. Christ is the one in whom the Lord takes great pleasure. In Mark 1.11, I mentioned it earlier, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus, or sorry, God spoke from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you, I, and the word literally means, I take delight. Can you imagine that moment? I mean, all of us as dads and moms too can see that moment when our child does something that just makes our heart explode with pride. And you're just thrilled to see what they're doing and you just you delight in your son. And the Father spoke from heaven and I believe He spoke in an audible voice in the, in the language of Aramaic so everybody around could see and, and to not be crude or cheap. I think He said, There He is! Ask my boy. I don't mean to be disrespectful. But I'm sure, I'm convinced the father's heart was just booming with pride and delight in his son. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that, that he uh, displayed him for all to see in signs and wonders and miracles. He displayed the son and how much the father delighted in the son in all those things. And here in Isaiah 42, the Lord speaking about His servant, He says, in Him in whom my soul delights. Christ is the one on whom the Lord has bestowed great favor. What more favor can you get than this? In Philippians 2.11, God gave Him the name that's above every other name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. And brothers and sisters, that day is coming. Not far away, every single soul ever born, ever conceived, will bow the knee and confess with the tongue that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Lord also receives great satisfaction from the person and the works of His servant, His one and only unique Son. In Isaiah 53 and verse 11, the Bible says, He saw of the travail of His soul and was satisfied. What satisfaction do we get out of the trivial junk in this world? Jesus finds satisfaction in just cheap little things. But the Father saw the work of the Son to save sinners. The Father saw the agony of His soul. The Father saw Him give Himself on behalf of His people. The Father saw all the weight of His own wrath heaped down upon His Son. And His Son endured it all the way to the end. And He was satisfied. There's delight in that. 
Take your Bibles as we wrap it up to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, 2 and 3. In Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, I want us to see some more reasons why the Father delighted in the Son. I beg your pardon. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. Sorry. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. But we'll read from verse 1 just to catch the context. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That was verse 4 too. Why does the Father delight in the Son? Consider the scope of his service in these two verses. He created all things. He is the master craftsman enacting and completing all of His Father's design and intention for creation. He is the heir of all things, which means that not only did He create all things, they were for Him to inherit. He, was, he created them and they are for Him. And then there's the third one. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That oh, that phrase, again, like the other one before, you could spend a lifetime studying and preaching that one phrase. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I was, trying, I was sitting on the train on Friday going up to Warrnambool to meet Cam, and I was just trying to get my head around, how do you understand that? What does that mean? The radiance of the glory of God. And the one thing I could put my finger on was every single attribute of God is displayed in Christ to a level of perfection that we can see God's holiness when we see Christ's holiness. We can see God's omnipotence when we see Christ's omnipotence. We can see God's omniscience, His all-knowing of everything, past, present, future, possible, and actual, when we see it in Christ. He's the visible display of all of God's attributes. By the way, never ever think that Jesus is like God 2.0, kinder, softer, gentler God. Never think that. It's not true. He is God as surely as God the Father is God. And you can go through the Gospels and you can find all the different attributes of God the Father displayed and represented in Christ. And He visibly displayed those to all of creation. And for that reason, I think that's what the writer means when he says He is the radiance of God's glory. Why is it, brother, that we should spend as much time as we can trying to see Christ? Because when we see Him, like He said, you see Me, you see the Father. He is the exact imprint of God's nature and He upholds and sustains 
like all of creation by the power, the word of his power. And number six, he made purification for sins. He died to cleanse us, our conscience, from evil works, to reconcile us to God. And having finished all the service that God gave him to do, he is exalted and seated at the Father's right hand. Why does the Father delight in the Son? That's just scratching a little bit of the surface of it. You know, beloved, as I thought through this all week and I wrestled with those words, that the God delights, delights in His Son. The question that come back to me and the question that nobody wants to be asked right now is this one. Brother and sister in Christ, what or who is the delight of your soul? It's easy to stand up in church and go, oh, Jesus is the delight of my soul. Let me ask you this. What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? What's the first place your mind goes when it's set free from all the distractions and problems of the day of your work or family or all those other things? Where's the first place your mind goes? What occupies the greatest bulk of your thinking? The Father delighted in the Son. And when we see Jesus as He truly is, it ought to draw our hearts upwards in worship and delight for Him. And my goal in all of this is to hold up Jesus Christ for everybody to see so that there will they, all of us, you and I together, will can see Christ and delight in Him above all else. That's the challenge to my own heart. Brother and sister in Christ, what is the delight of your soul? For what, for whom do you and I have the greatest affection? Is it Christ? Or is it somebody or something else? Brother and sister, I challenge you. You say, yeah, but you know, I'm not perfect yet. You're right. You're not. Neither am I. I have so many other distractions. You're right. So do we all. But where is the first place your mind and your heart and your thought? Where where does it go back to? I think if we were all to take a moment and close our eyes and just stop and think and examine our own hearts to see what is the delight of my soul, the Lord would show us in that moment Brother and sister in Christ, when we delight in and we magnify anybody or anything above Jesus Christ, it is idolatry. And the call of, the, of Isaiah in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Behold, look and see, my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul Delights. May God help us, brother and sister in Christ. May God help all of us to see Jesus, to see the glory and the beauty of the Son of God in all of His attributes, to see the glory and beauty of our Savior, realize our sin, and see the grace of God that offers salvation and forgiveness for us all, and run to Him 
and begin to delight in Him again. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray together and then we'll have a benediction. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we remember those words. He is the radiance of Your glory. Father, I cry out to You that You would help me, help all of us to understand what that means. Father, help us. Help us to push aside the distractions and and the, the things that so easily ensnare us away from holy contemplation. To behold Jesus. To look and see the One in whom Your soul delights. Father, I pray, I plead with You, O God, that You would do a work in every single one of us that as we see Christ, that You would transform us into the same image. Father, help us as a people to see the service that He rendered and serve alongside. Father, help us to rest in the fact that just as You upheld Him, You grasped onto Him so, oh God, You are with us, holding us, and causing us to finish and maintain and run the race to the very end. Father, we pray. We plead with You, O God, that You would do that work of transformation in each of us as we see Jesus. Help us, O God, to see Him, we pray. Father, for the, the one that does not know Christ, Father, I cry out to You that by the power of the Holy Spirit that You would cause them to focus fully on the Lord Jesus, to see Him to recognize that they indeed are sinners in desperate need of cleansing and forgiveness and salvation from God's wrath. Father, I pray that You would do a work in all of us from the unsaved for the one, to the one that's been saved for many years, that we would see Jesus and be transformed into His image. Father, we ask You all these things. We give You thanks again, O God, for a day of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In Revelation chapter 5, these words as a benediction. And John is writing and he says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And they all fell down and said, Amen. Amen. God bless you all.